As Eckhart Tolle said, boredom, anger, sadness, or fear are not yours, not personal. They are conditions of the human mind. They come and go. Nothing that comes and goes is you. Join Sue Jackson every Tuesday at 10 a.m. for Finding Human, a look at the wonder that is the human mind, right here on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and my guest today is Rene Posniak, who's a Holocaust educator and takes frequent every year, actually takes the March of the Living Tour to Poland and Israel. And I've been with her um, to both Poland and Israel. Rene is also a very good friend of mine, and actually we're very excited to be opposite each other because it's the first time we've actually seen each other this year. <laughs> Hello, Ren, and Hello, welcome. Hello, Sue. So nice to see you. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> Ren, now, yesterday, no, Saturday was it? Was a Holocaust Sunday. Sunday, Sunday was Holocaust Remembrance Day. And, you know, I got this thing from uh, Philip Weyer's, um General Smuts's grandson, who's sort of like my Machatenister, and um, it says, if we held a moment of silence for every victim of the Holocaust, we would be silent for 11 and a half years. Isn't that frightening? Absolutely frightening. So why do you feel that it's really important to take groups to Poland? And tell us the ages of the group, please. Okay, so I'll first talk about why I think going to Poland has become so important or more important than before, and then I'm going to talk about the group specifically, March of the Living. So I think that um, in answer to your question, we have to say that we are 80 years away from the start of the Second World War. And can we say that the world has learned its lesson? Definitely not. So we know that on Sunday the 27th, as you said, of January, was was International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And in the preface of the United Nations resolution, which which chose that day to have a special status. It says that the Holocaust, in which a third of the Jewish people were annihilated, will forever serve as a warning to all of mankind against the danger of free hatred, racism, and prejudice. Unfortunately, if we switch on our TV today or follow any news programs, we can see that sadly and alarmingly there's an escalation of violence and anti-Semitism mm-hmm. um, or anti-Semitic incidences right across the world. Um, and there's a lot of denial also of the Holocaust happening Absolute now. denial of, of the Holocaust, which is probably the new form of anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. that and the whole issue and of Israel and anti-Zionism, mm-hmm. absolutely. So we also had last year, 2018, where the European Union... Uh, issued a joint definition of what anti-Semitism is. But sadly, the leaders of these countries don't seem to be implementing uh, anything about that definition. And we see this very clearly in the universities, in the schools, and just generally in the media. And I think possibly the third reason that is making Poland more important is the very alarming CNN poll that came out about anti-Semitism in Europe, and they touched on America as well. Just to say some of the the findings of that, they said that 20% of Europeans justify Mm, anti-Semitism. They said that a quarter, 25% of Europeans, think that Jews have got too much influence over money and political matters in their countries. And if you looked at their countries, you'd probably find that there was a minimal amount of, P- of Jews actually living there. Absolutely. I mean, even the United States, the Jewish population is 2%. <laughs> so, and then they, that a third think that we as Jews use the Holocaust for our own goals. Uh. And 20% of French youth didn't know anything about the Holocaust. And between 15 and 19% of Polish and, and Austrian claim that they openly, that they don't like Jews. Mm. So I think that the shift Jewish communities are starting to feel all over the world, we're starting to see the debate again of, should I go out wearing my kippah in the street? Mm. Or shouldn't I, of mm. fear of being attacked? And uh, even though this is not happening everywhere, it's certainly that sentiment is starting to be felt. Very definitely. And we're hearing it all the time too. 
very sadly. If you'd like to SMS us, uh, you can on 34519 or you can WhatsApp us on 0618951019. You know, um, uh, there was a, a report by German, by um, Angela Merkel at the remembrance thing. And she actually spoke about not ever forgetting. And it was quite an interesting article. It says survivors mark Holocaust remembrance. And um, she actually said um, that we need to always remember. And she said people growing up today must know what people were capable of in the past. That's what Angela Merkel said on, on Saturday. And we must work proactively to ensure that it is never repeated. And then even though the uh, Canadian um, Prime Minister Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, released a statement on Sunday remembering victims of the Nazis and acknowledging Canada's own history of anti-Semitism. Now, in Canada, it's also growing rapidly, yes, anti-Semitism. Yes, unfortunately. And he actually goes on to say the threats of violence, xenophobia and anti-Semitism still exist today. The murder of 11 Jews at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh is fresh in our minds. So even more important for you to be taking these groups and educating them. Absolutely. Um, so if I use the March of the Living as the vehicle that we use to take the youth to, to Poland and adults, by the way, um, this is in, in, in April, this is going to be the 31st March. Mm. So the March of the Living has been around for 31 years and it's taken thousands and thousands of students from all over the Jewish world. And they walk alongside Holocaust survivors, state leaders, decision makers, people of influence, artists, and they walk together at the same, in the same place at the same time from Auschwitz to Birkenau, uh, symbolically recreating what was a death march. And you ask yourself why? Why do we continually do this? Um, why are we continually uh, remembering such a tragic, dark Past, a part in our in our history and in human history, why? So the truth is because our mission is not done. There, there, there really probably are two missions with this. The first one is that we have an obligation to pass the torch of memory to the next generation. It is, it is it's very very important for us to do that. Um, even though Holocaust survivors are diminishing, Holocaust denial. Xenophobia is on the, is on the rise. So we, so the, the obligation and the duty, the moral obligation to pass this memory on has become even more important. Which is why Steven Spielberg's whole, um, um, recording Absolutely. Of, of witnesses and of, of survivors is so important. Because the truth is with the loss of that dimension, authenticity becomes a lot more difficult mm. and mm. the challenge of telling this narrative is going to be a lot more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that the second mission that we have is that as Jews and as human beings, we have to fight against anti-Semitism, racism or discrimination of any kind. We're just breaking for an advert and we have a very short YouTube coming on and please enjoy it. The Auschwitz Memorial was the focus of events to commemorate International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Former prisoners and staff of the German Nazi concentration and extermination camp attended a ceremony to mark the 74th anniversary of its liberation in 1945. The Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki and President Andrzej Duda were among the many international leaders there. Reeds were laid at the camp including at the so-called Central Sauna, where new inmates were stripped and tattooed by Nazi officers. Auschwitz-Birkenau was liberated by the Red Army on January the 27th, 1945. Some of the dwindling number of survivors were able to visit the site and reflect on the horrors which happened within their lives. The camp was used for five years, during which about 1.1 million people were killed. They were mostly Jews, but also Poles, Soviet prisoners of war, Roma, and other groups. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and my guest today is Rene Posniak, and we are talking about why 
she feels so passionate about taking groups to Poland and then on to Israel. Ren, just go on telling me about the groups that you actually take to Poland. What what do you think they go expecting, and yet what do they end up finding? So it's interesting, and I'm very proud to say that this year the group has exploded. We are. I had 87 applications. Wow. There are 71 that will be going. Uh, the group is normally a lot smaller than that. So there's definitely an increased interest and a desire, word of mouth from the kids that have gone before. I think that the, the expectation is pretty realistic. I don't think anybody can really prepare you for what you're going to see and what you're going to experience. But they do know that this is not Disney World. They know that this is not London tour mm. and that they're going to need strength emotionally and physically and to dig deep to be able to share this experience. So you always take a therapist with you, don't you, a psychotherapist? We, well, we always take some sort of counsellor. We debrief every night in, in, to make sure that everybody's talking about what they're seeing. We also do try emotionally to prepare you. But the truth is, till you get there, mm. you, you haven't been. Um, so one of the main things about having been in Jewish education for a long time, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that physically going to the sites where this took place, you can achieve much more than you can ever achieve in 12 years in a sterile classroom. So if our community and the Jewish community globally want to see Jews buy into staying Jewish, they have to invest in doing anything that strengthens Jewish identity. And I think going to Poland even though what we're trying to show them is actually a trip into the imagination because a lot of what you're trying to show them isn't there anymore. And we recreate it with testimonies and eyewitnesses and that type of thing, diaries. Um, that experience is so impactful and, and it never leaves them. I don't believe that you can leave Auschwitz with all the horror that you see there and, and leave unaffected in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that you can go to a crematoria and see so much human ash, particularly in Madanik, tons mm. of it. It's dreadful. And not get to understand the level of evil that man can descend to and what human beings can be asked to endure. Or to go into the forests, to the pits where the mass, you know, graves. mass graves. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and often I, I do think, and having spoken to quite a few people who have been on the March of the Living, that at the time it has it hadn't sunk in. But as people began to share what they were feeling on the bus because of the long distances between camps and what have you, um, they began to feel more and experience the, the real feeling of it. The truth is that I think that the processing of what you actually see there might not even start there. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it takes a long time. Sometimes you need the distance away from it to see it in some kind of perspective. I can tell you that I've been 14 times and I understand it less now than I did the first time I go. I it, was going to ask you that actually. I don't, it makes no sense. It's, uh, it's a level of depravity that is, I don't even believe animals do to each other. So it's very, very hard to come to grips with it. And um, and the processing takes a long time. Mm-hmm. But on the spot, we are trying to debrief it constantly. Um, we're also very clear to tell the participants that any reaction is okay. There's no prescribed reaction. You don't have to cry. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see something that is beyond crying even. Crying doesn't seem good enough. Some kids just withdraw. Some laugh. Mm-hmm. Everybody deals with it in their own way, and it's okay. I remember two girls. Actually, we there. It was um. It was at one of the the camps, the one with the long um, passageway. What was that one called? Not Madanik. No, the one that you go into that very dark room uh, and light um, a candle. That's Belzec. Yes, Belzec. And there was the glass windows, and they were pretending to. They were playing the floor. They were sort of uh, playing, you know, just. And one of the adults from another country said, 
can't believe those girls. Look how they're behaving. And I actually said to to her, who knows what they're feeling? Perhaps they're needing just to relieve the the pressure on themselves for a moment, and this is how they're doing it. You know, I think everyone processes in a different way. Absolutely. And I also think that going with your peers is a tremendous support because mm. you're all at the same emotional age level, mm. and I think that it makes it okay to... Process this and accept it however you feel is okay. And also to, every now and again, if you want to laugh, laugh. But, but Ren, you've been in it for 14 years. Now, education has changed tremendously because of internets, Google, Safari. How, how have you coped with that? So Sue, I'm glad you're asking that because it's, it's, it's the challenge. When I first started doing this, um, we gave the, the, the basic way of educating, full frontal, gave out notes, would stand in Treblinka and uh, give the history, give the facts, give the dates, give the figures. And that's how we did it, and then we walked through it. Today, because of the Internet, the kids are completely different. The way they learn, the way they are receptive to information has changed completely. So, for example, there is no point in standing there and giving them facts. Because at a push of a button, while you're talking to them, they can Google Treblinka Mm. and have much more information than they could ever deal with. So a teacher or an educator today is not an information giver. It's a lot more difficult to be an educator today because what you have to do is try and extract lessons from what it is that they're reading. Not everything the Internet says is true, although they think it is. So it's it's very, very challenging. The real challenge is how do you take a 16 or 17-year-old from this country, from South Africa, and make the story of the Holocaust, the narrative, relevant to him? Mm. Something that happened over 75 years ago, and he comes, he lives on the other side of the world. What's the relevance? He's got so much else to deal with today. Why do we keep making him learn this? Mm. Mm. And I, I think you can you can look at things like what Jonathan Sachs says, that that to protect a country you need an army, but to protect a civilization you need schools, you need education. Education is the tool and weapon mm-hmm. to to deal with this and to actually reach through. Now you know the other thing that we actually were with talking about you and I was how in in certain countries they actually have taken this off the syllabus holocaust um, off the silica, uh, the syllabus but in South Africa you were telling me how many hours they had to do how, what does it work out to So I'm actually very proud of that that South Africa makes holocaust education 15 hours of holocaust education in grade 9 compulsory Wow. Which is something to be really proud of. We'll get back to that in a moment. We're going to be listening to another um, short YouTube. Billions of people walking, talking, sleeping, thinking, dreaming, breathing, crying, smiling, laughing, Billions of people living. Billions of people listening. One hundred one point nine High FM, your radio station of choice since two thousand and eight. It's our obligation as Jewish teens to be prepared to pass on the stories and make sure the Holocaust is never forgotten. March of the Living is a two-week journey that takes place each spring. One week in Poland, and then one week in Israel. The first week in Poland is about understanding the accomplishments and the hardships of the Jewish people in Europe. We go to Auschwitz, Birkenau, Treblinka. Being able to touch and feel all these places that people have been, the pictures just don't do it justice in the slightest. The actual march takes place on Holocaust Memorial Day. Thousands and thousands of teens march from Auschwitz to Birkenau, just like our ancestors. In my experience, there was nothing greater, nothing more powerful, nothing more uplifting than walking out of the gates of Auschwitz with thousands of other Jews, everyone just cheering, everyone rejoicing the fact that the Jewish people are still here. As we walked down the streets, I got the sense of pride. I took a second to look back and I saw all the 10,000 it was unbelievable. And to be there and to be able to testify our hope and our future it was an amazing experience. We had a Holocaust survivor on the trip, and her name was Trudy, and she's one of the most inspirational women that I've ever met. She said that when the last survivor fades away, we're going to become the survivors. And we're going to be the ones who are going to tell the story firsthand. And that meant the world to me because that's what this trip's all about. 
I rejoice in my heart seeing these Jewish young kids here. Like they say, Vador, Vador, that it goes from generation to generation. And it's a very significant part of their growing up. Landing in Israel was such a great feeling. The second the plan landed, everyone started singing, everyone started rejoicing. It just felt different. You remember it for a week, and now you're rejoicing. We get to climb Masada, we get to visit the Dead Sea. We can go to the beach, we go to the Western Wall. We celebrate Independence Day in Jerusalem. There were different concerts going on, there were different people cheering. The pride is unbelievable. Seeing where our people came from and seeing what they had to go through, it changes the whole perspective of Israel. March of the Living gives you an opportunity to grow as a person. You start to question the world and the foundations that have been set up and how you want to shake them and change the world. Although it is difficult to see the concentration camps, it's an experience that I think that every Jew should have. It changes you. You'll become a stronger person, you will become a more educated person, and you'll be overcome with this want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. March of the Living gives you a unique perspective on the world that many people will not see. Many of your classmates won't be able to see. Many of your parents won't be able to see. I can show people what's really happened and hopefully I can make a difference in someone's life just like this trip has made a difference in mine. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson and my guest today is Rene Posniak and our topic is why visit Poland and Israel. And just before we broke for to hear that YouTube, Rene was saying how she excited she is and proud she is of South Africa because of our syllabus, our Holocaust syllabus. Just go back to that for a moment, Rene. Um, so the, the Department of Education implemented a few years ago already that all South Africans kids would have 15 hours of intense Holocaust education. There's a textbook that's been produced and it's, I'm very proud of that. We also, at the Holocaust and Genocide Center, give workshops to teachers of rural schools so that that message can go out to them as well. So it's schools across the country. Yes, yes. And I think that if you look, there are other countries that are trying to take it out of the syllabus. Uh, there's tremendous denial in other countries that it happened. So we can be really proud that our country has taken a stand where they don't deny it, they acknowledge it, and they're pushing for education in it. And how do you educate? How do you actually go into a school and educate? So, Sue, that's why I think going to Poland changes things. Because here in a classroom, you're removed. It's sterile. Mm. You try and bring it alive with DVDs, with movies, with you read diaries, etc. And... We try to bring it alive. We try very hard because of the way education has changed to, it's not so much about the information as it is about extracting the lessons of what actually happened here. What, when you learn something like this, when you get the knowledge of what happened, what do you do with that knowledge? Mm. Does it leave you unaffected or do, does it change the way you think? I think the best way I can explain how well, certainly on the South African March of the Living, what we do is that we, we try to identify every day a theme, some dilemma that occurred at that time, explain it, debate it with the kids, and basically try and see how they could bring it into their own lives. How do you make this relevant? So how give you, us an example. So I'm going to give you three. Okay. Uh, there are lots, but there are three that I'd like to give you. The first one is um, Simon Wiesenthal. The, um, Nazi the hunter. Nazi hunter, exactly. He wrote a tiny little book called The Sunflower. And in this book basically explains that he was an inmate during the Holocaust. He was taken with some, some other people as slaves to clean up uh, a yard or a garden, which happened to be the grounds of the university where he became an engineer. And while he was working, a nurse came up to him and said, are you Jewish? He said, yes, and she said, come with me. And she took him away from the rest of the inmates up into into the the um, university that had now become a hospital, and she took him to a room where the door was closed, pushed him through, and he was inside a, a dark room. And as his eyes adjusted, he saw that there was a patient sitting in the in the in the bed, completely covered in bandages. And the the the, the patient beckoned for him to come closer to the bed, which he did. And then the patient grabbed his hand and made him sit on the bed. The patient was a Nazi. 
who was dying and wanted to confess to a Jew what he had done. And he wanted absolution. He wanted forgiveness from him. And uh, Simon Wiesenthal listened and decided not to give his forgiveness and he ran away. That night in the, in the, in the bunks, he was explaining to his friends where he had been. He then wrote this book and he went and he got about 20 world leaders, Mary Robinson, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, etc., yeah. to write short little essays about forgiveness from their perspective. And it's just interesting that Rabbi Lau, Chief Rabbi Lau, who accompanies the March of the Living every year. And he himself was a, a survivor, exactly, a child survivor. Exactly. Mm. And he's very, very clear that only a victim can forgive. Mm-hmm. You don't have the permission to forgive on behalf of somebody else. So we debate that with the kids, and it's that whole issue of of forgiveness, I think, becomes part of them and, and will inform them later on in different situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, another theme that we look at, for example, the Judenrat. The Judenrat was the Jewish council that were appointed by the Nazis. Jews that were appointed to this didn't do it out of choice. If they wouldn't be on the council, they would be shot and their families. So you need to understand it was a forced position. And Hannah Arendt, the, the, the Jewish philosopher, writer, she really believes that the Judenrat aided the Germans in what they did and that the Holocaust wouldn't have been as successful. And it's a very, it's a very serious accusation to make. So we look at the Judenrat. We look at different models. There's Chaim Ramkowski, who was head of the Lodge Getter, mm. who, um, asks everybody to give them their, their children so that, that they could be deported. He was considered to be a traitor by some Jews. You then look at Adam Chernikov, who was head of the Warsaw Ghetto, where he was asked to make sure that there were 6,000 people standing at the gate every morning for deportation. Mm-hmm. They had to choose them. He understood that deportation meant death. And he, he was so, he went to talk, he went to try and negotiate with the Nazis to please not do this and they, they, he, he didn't win. So he went home, wrote a letter to his wife and he took cyanide and committed suicide. Mm, because good he, heavens. So the, what's the bottom line? What are we talking about here? And that is judgment. Making judgment of people until you're in their position. Absolutely. Don't do it. No. And the very last example is somebody like Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel said that the peril that is threatening humankind today is indifference, even more than hatred. He said that there are many more people that are indifferent than hate. And he said because hate is an action. Mm-hmm. It requires energy. It takes time, maybe even sacrifice. Indifference is nothing. But he said indifference allows hatred to thrive. Indifference gives permission to hatred. Mm-hmm. So really what we need to try and address is indifference. So when we are leaving to come back to South Africa, we pose that question to the children. What are you going to do with what you've just learned and what you've just experienced? Are you going to go home and lead the same life and be indifferent to everything that you see and hearing around you? Or is this going to inform the way you analyze things, the way you treat people, and the way you receive what's going on in the world? Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful lesson, actually, to give. If you'd like to SMS us, you can on 34519, or you can WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019. You know that um, the other thing about the March of the Living, of course, are that um, a, a vast majority are, um, are actually Jewish high school students, as you mentioned, from different countries. But there are also many non-Jewish groups in attendance, um, along with adult groups. I remember the Polish uh, Friends of Israel came up to Shira and I and spoke to us and asked if they could march with the South African group, which which was very meaningful, actually. That dynamic has just grown and grown. Has it? And, in fact, there's an active soliciting of non-Jewish groups by March of the Living International because this is not just a Jewish narrative. No, this not. is not just Jews that have lessons to learn from this. The whole world has lessons mm-hmm. to learn from this. And I think, you know, that when people say, why don't we forget the past, uh, it's impossible to forget the past. And I actually often think that the, Ro- the Romas, the, the, the Poles who died, all of them, they have not been actually, mem- um, their memories have not been for a blessing, you know, like like the Jewish memories have become of the Holocaust. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we get criticized for the way we commemorate and memorialize Mm -hmm. this event, but it is part of our DNA. It is to move forward, even at the heart of your joy when getting married. 
you break a glass to symbolize the destruction of the temple. So even when you're happy, you need to remember on the shoulders of where that could have come. Absolutely. Even before we have Yom HaSmot, the, the night of the day before is Yom HaZikaron. Just to say that in, it's, it's, in uh, Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so Yom HaZikaron is a unique thing that, that Israel does, and that is to commemorate all fallen soldiers that made the existence of Israel possible. Um, and, and Israel is a family. Everybody owns these young boys and girls that have died. And the very next day is probably the most joyous day in, in Israel where we celebrate the establishment of the state of Israel. So that is part of what we do. We don't forget the past. Mm. And it, it enables you to move on to a healthier, more meaningful future. And I think this is where when you take the groups from Poland to Israel – that dynamic is absolutely amazing to watch. I remember we were in Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem and the group had all gone off in different directions and you and I would try to sort of fight our way through to go and have coffee somewhere and all of a sudden everyone was dancing down the street. It was packed and all of a sudden these prams were were put across everyone's head you know they they sort of were passing babies across to go to the front and the the parents were following it was the most amazing feeling of unity and excitement and trust and you know it was wonderful so sue i'm glad you brought up israel even though i know it's not specifically the topic of this conversation which was why poland they're very linked I think that going to Israel afterwards is absolutely imperative to the Polish experience. There are uh, students that ask if they could just do, do Poland because they've done Israel so many times, and I say no. This is a journey, and it's got a circle, and we go backwards in our history and forwards into our present and our future. I think that coming to Israel after you've been to Poland puts Israel in a completely different perspective. Very definitely. I think that for the first time you understand that the Holocaust happened because there wasn't an Israel mm-hmm. and that Israel's survival is not negotiable. I think that that's part of what they learn. And the second very important thing that we often overlook is that we commemorate our past a lot. And unfortunately, a lot of our past is very sad and tragic. It's about persecution. It's about death. It's about expulsion. It's about prejudice. But when you come to Israel and you see this vibrant startup nation that is so charismatic and is give, has given and continues to give the world so much. Absolutely. You stop defining yourself by the tragedy and the persecution. We're so much more than that. And I think Israel solidifies that for us. And that's why I think it's imperative that Israel be the counterpart or the other side of the coin to going to Poland. And to actually saying we are a nation who have survived. You know, we, we have that inner strength, that dynamic in the DNA that collectively we will stand together and actually overcome these incredible difficulties. Absolutely. And I think nothing is shown so clearly as on the march because you are mm. bringing together different languages, cultures, Backgrounds completely speaking, uh, you, you wonder how this is going to work. But there's some thread. We are part of one family. And I think for South Africans, I've said this before, coming from the tip of Africa, where we don't come into contact with Jews from all over the world, that this is an unbelievable realization of being part of something much, much bigger than you ever imagined. Well, I remember marching from Auschwitz-Birkenau and looking back, and just seeing this sea of faces and Israeli flags and uh, the March of the Living Jackets, it was it was phenomenal. It was a, an image that I will never forget. You know, it it it's in your mind. And then dancing through the streets of Jerusalem with the drums playing and and water being thrown at you <laughs> because it was very hot. Uh, it was just you know both. It was amazing to actually go from this tragedy. To this triumph of That's survival. Absolutely. And so I think being part of the world today, it just is a moral obligation mm-hmm. to, this is, well, this is the most documented of, of all the genocides. So to use it as a tool, not only to learn the facts and the tragedy of what happened, but to use it as a tool to go forward mm-hmm. of what not to do, 
a, a, a clear example of what happens when hatred and hate speech is allowed to just flourish, as it is at the moment. Absolutely. And Viktor Frankl actually said, since Auschwitz, we know what man is capable of. And since Hiroshima, we know what is at stake. And quite honestly, that statement alone is quite terrifying. Uh, but you know what he also said was, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man. But one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And we can say that about the the Holocaust, the survivors, the people who we lost in the Holocaust. But we can certainly also say it about the people who went on to Palestine at the time and built up uh, uh, Israel into this vibrant country that became a symbol to the whole world, actually, of what could be achieved through unbelievable hardship. Don't you agree? The human spirit. Mm, it is. Absolutely. I, I love to use the example of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Yes, tell us about that. Where um, the youngsters, Mordechai Levitch and, and the rest of them, they understood that the reality of using homemade Molotov cocktails and a few smuggled in arms was never going to be uh, successful against the mighty Third Reich Army. They did, however, manage to uh, keep it at bay, keep them at bay for, for a month. Quite amazing. Absolutely that, eh? amazing. So, but they knew, they knew, they, they couldn't choose their circumstances. Mm-hmm. They were victims. They couldn't choose the circumstances, but they chose how they reacted to that circumstance. They also cho- chose how they were going to die. So when military people and military academies study w- various wars and the tactics that we used, no one's ever going to look at the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising as an example of a victorious uh, strategy, military strategy. But if they wanted an example of the human spirit, this is an unbelievable example mm-hmm. because they chose how to react to their circumstance and they chose how they were going to die. So they chose their attitude and they went from victim to victor, didn't they? And they're remembered for that. And I think that's part of what you actually educate the kids to realize that the, the power of that human spirit to survive. Yeah. In, in, in many ways, survival is not always to live, but how, how they did live until the end. And I can tell you, Sue, these kids are smart. They get it. Mm-hmm. And I have learned as much from them as I hope they've learned from me. Or from the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, they really, they, they just get it. They, they, they feed it back in a way that you know, that they know what you're talking about. You know, I think also there was one, uh, I read about a, a high school um, boy in, in America and he, he writes on his blog about uh, how he went to to Auschwitz, Birkenau, and and what he learned from it, and he, he and he said this trip was worth the sadness. Pain leads to growth, and growth leads to fulfillment. What the lessons that he learned never take life for granted. Most of our problems are certainly not problems. Hate will get us nowhere. Put yourself in someone else's shoes before making judgment. We're breaking for a, a real hear Rabbi Sachs, and then I'll go back to these lessons that he learned because they're well worth listening to. My lords, I too am grateful to the most reverend primate for initiating this debate on a subject vital to the future flourishing of our children and grandchildren. My lords, allow me to speak personally as a Jew. Something about our faith moves me greatly and goes to the heart of this debate. At the dawn of our people's history, Moses assembled the Israelites on the brink of the Exodus. He did not talk about the long walk to freedom. He didn't speak about the land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, repeatedly, he turned to the far horizon of the future and spoke about the duty of parents to educate their children. He did it again at the end of his life in the famous words, you shall teach these things repeatedly to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. 
Why this obsession with education that has stayed with us from that day to this? Because to defend a country, you need an army. But to defend a civilization, you need schools. You need education as the conversation between the generations. Whatever the society, the culture, or the faith, we need to teach our children and they theirs what we aspire to and the ideals we were bequeathed by those who came before us. We need to teach them the story of which we and they are a part. And we need to trust them to go further than we did when they come to write their own chapter. We make a grave mistake if we think of education only in terms of knowledge and skills, what the American writer David Brooks calls the resume virtues as opposed to the eulogy virtues. And this is not woolly idealism. It's hard-headed pragmatism. Never has the world changed so fast, and it's getting faster every year. We have no idea what patterns of employment will look like in two, let alone 20 years from now, what skills will be valued, and which done instead by artificially intelligent, preternaturally polite robots. We need to give our children an internalized moral satellite navigation system so that they can find their way across the undiscovered country called the future. We need to give them the strongest possible sense of collective responsibility for the common good because we don't know who will be the winners and the losers in the lottery of the global economy and we need to make sure its blessings are shared. There's too much I and too little we in our culture and we need to teach our children to care for others, especially for those not like us. We work for all these things in our Jewish schools. We give our children confidence in who they are so that they can handle change without fear and keep learning through a lifetime. We teach them to be not just proud Jews, but proud to be English, British, defenders of democratic freedom, and active citizens helping those in need. Schools are about more than what we know and what we can do. They're about who we are and what we must do to help others become what they might be. The world our children will inherit tomorrow is born in the schools we build today. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Renee Posniak, and she's just asked if I actually mentioned before who that was talking. That was uh, Lord Jonathan, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, and I mean, he's what he said is just so true. And what this, well, I was telling you before about what this youngster said about the lessons he had taken. Never take life for granted. Most of our problems are not problems. Hate will get us nowhere. Put yourself in someone else's shoes before you make judgment. And if you're reading this, you are privileged. You have a computer or ability to read, to see, and more. And he also says, we must not allow history to repeat itself. And evil will only take you so far. You cannot love others until you love yourself first. So true. It is so true, isn't it? Now, Ren, I wanted you to tell us a bit about the um, Eagles over Auschwitz because Philip Bayers again, I mean, Philip is great sending me things. He sent me uh, um, a, sh- a short YouTube on this. It was very exciting to see. It, it, it is so exciting. It makes you just want to explode with pride. Um, you know, one of the big issues, of course, is that there wasn't an IDF at the time of the Holocaust that could have come and saved Jews or rescued them. Um, I'm not sure of the year. I don't know if your article I tells you that. I think it was 2003 that it was. I know it that done. it's quite a while ago where permission was given for the IDF to fly over Auschwitz. I think just the visual sight of a foreign army defense force flying over a, a sovereign country is unheard of, you know, in times of peace. Absolutely. And it would symbolically to see the power of this mighty Israeli uh, fly, fly, past, fly past, 
It's and they came along the railway lines, they, I believe. They came along and swooped over, and you could see everything from out there. If I'm not mistaken, a lot of the, the, the pilots, there was some sort of connection mm. that they had to, to the Holocaust, whether it was through um, survivors or yeah, relatives, relatives or whatever. But uh, unbelie- I, no matter how many times I see that, you can Google it on YouTube. Uh, it's, it's just, it's amazing. I found myself actually crying as I watched it. And then also because that, um, uh, the leader, the formation leader was Brigadier General Amir Eshel. And he read out the following, which came over the loudspeakers. And he said, we pilots of the Air Force flying in the skies above the camp of horrors arose from the ashes of the millions of victims and shoulder their silent cries. We salute their courage and promise to be the shield of the Jewish people and its nation, Israel. How powerful that. So powerful. Can you imagine being there and hearing that? It's something worth watching every year to refresh your soul. And I think with you going back to Israel and, um, as you say, seeing what it's achieved and Israel Defense Force, and you know, that it's so, something to be so proud of, the, the nation. An investment in Jewish identity, mm. really. It is. I, I can't think of a better way of, uh, of any community um, ensuring that the next generation Will buy into staying Jewish. Absolutely. Ren, you know, we haven't got much time, but I don't think it would be a good program, yeah, today, <laughs> unless we mentioned the righteous amongst the nations. Absolutely. And there were, I mean, then there were often bystanders who, who were suddenly saw something, um, they might have been indifferent initially and something, a moral feeling suddenly came over them at great risk to themselves and their families. So we're very grateful to the ordinary people that did these, these extraordinary deeds. There might have been few in number, but they certainly Absolutely. were there. And there is the Avenue of the Righteous at Yad Vashem where trees are planted in their memory. It would have been lovely if it was, if it was a huge forest, but we're very, very grateful f- for that. I, to be honest, it's something that we discuss often on the trip. It's, I don't know whether I would have done it. I don't know whether putting my family in danger mm. to save a stranger is something that I would have done. Possibly, if I have to be really honest, probably not. I've often questioned myself on that as well. And uh, you cannot ever judge someone until you actually are in that situation where your whole family are are at risk. Would you risk their lives? I don't know if I would. I think it's a tough question. Uh, Craig is just showing his advert card to me a frequency like no other 101.9 high fm hello this is sue jackson on finding human and i was just saying to renee that scholars have attempted to actually trace the characteristics that these righteous share and to identify who were more likely to extend help to the jews or to other persecuted persons but um it, it seems to me that there's, the only common denominator are the humanity and the courage they displayed by standing up for their moral principles. I mean, you know, if you actually think about that, what unbelievable courage. So it's interesting because there were Jews that did that and there were non-Jews that did that. Mm-hmm. And a Jew is not considered to be a righteous amongst the nations. But if you look at someone like Janusz Korczak, who was the Polish pediatrician, who uh, was Jewish, and he set up an orphanage in the Warsaw Ghetto and, and looked after all these children. And when, when the Nazis were coming for them, he got warned that they were coming in the morning and that he was offered escape because he had an independent personality in, in Warsaw. And he said, no, he's going with the children. And he, a lot has been written about the march from the orphanage to the Umschlagplatz where they were going to get on the trains. The pride with which he led the children all dressed in their finery and so so heartbreaking, so peaceful because they were going with him. Mm-hmm. And he got on the train to Treblinka, and they were never seen again. Mm-hmm. So that is an unbelievable act. And he was courage. killed with them. He he died with them absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then you get a non-Jew like Irina Sendler, who was a nurse in the Warsaw Ghetto, and how many children she saved by smuggling them out. 
um, hoping to reunite them with their parents after the war. Many of the parents died. She buried the, the she, names, didn't she? She buried the names in a little glass bottle under a tr- an apple tree a little bit away from her house. She was caught. She was tortured. She escaped. But the rest of her life, she only did devote it to helping Jewish orphans. So this is, you wonder where people get this inner strength from, and they are owed such a debt. They really all of are. Us. You know, there was um, um, in uh, Judy Weisenberg-Cohen, in a speech that she gave to students in, in 1997 March of the Living Tour, said um, that the last time she saw her mother during the selection of Hungarian jury in Auschwitz-Birkenau in the spring of 1944, and she said, I never had a chance to say goodbye to my mother. We didn't know we had to say goodbye. I am an old woman today, and I never made peace with the fact that I never had that last hug and kiss. They say when you listen to a witness, you become a witness too. I'm only asking you all to work for a world where nobody will ever have to live live with memories like mine ever again. Please work for Tikkun Alam. Heal the world. Powerful. Couldn't couldn't say it better. It's uh, that's exactly what this is and what trips to Poland give the opportunity to actually experience and to add that deep commitment and dimension to your own life, which gives it meaning. Mm. Getting back to Viktor Frankl gives your life meaning. It does give your life meaning. And I, th- I don't think matters the age, actually, because um, some of my family, m- m- some of my children have been this year and um, have come back absolutely enriched by the experience. Enriched nightmare, certainly, um, but enriched by that whole experience and wishing that they had gone on to Israel, which they hadn't. They went on an adult tour, but they will be going to Israel later this year and, um, you know, re- re-establish that sense of pride again also. But they, they also found a lot of pride in going to Poland and, and just seeing what people had survived and, and also being able to recognize the people who hadn't survived. You feel like you're on a mission mm. and that you're fulfilling something that's really very important. It is, and I, I emphasize that this is not just a journey for Jews. This is a journey for human beings mm. Mm. because we all are targets. And more so today than any other time. We're going to be wrapping up. Thank you so much, Ren, for coming on the show. Wonderful to see you. And we will definitely go on chatting over a cup of coffee. We are going to be ending with a, a, a song called Never Again. And it's a song to remember the Holocaust. Thank you. And Thank I'll you, Sue. You. I've enjoyed this tremendously. Thank I'm you. I'm so pleased. You told me you didn't want to come on with me today. And she's been <laughs> here. And it's been wonderful having her. Thank you, Craig. <laughs> 